Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata, and this is CNN Tonight. We're going to continue the conversation from CNN's town hall on the toxic train disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. We just heard from key players trying to deal with the aftermath of this dangerous spill, including Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Michael Regan, the head of the federal EPA. We also heard from residents of East Palestine who are still experiencing vomiting, bloody noses and other health issues. Many are still afraid to go back to their homes. The NTSB will release its preliminary report on the derailment tomorrow. And the EPA chief is turning up the pressure on Norfolk Southern, telling the railroad that it will be fully responsible for cleaning up the toxic mess and footing the bill for the disaster. Norfolk Southern's chief executive was confronted by an angry resident. I'm angry. I'm angry about this. I've lived in East Palestine for 65 years now. That's my home. My grandmother came from Germany. She lived in Palestine. My dad grew up there. My family's grown up there now. And it is disgusting that we're just lost it. I live in a house that's probably the closest of any of these. And and it's a shame. And this is probably the next closest one. And our house is, you know, it's been inspected. It's been this, it's been that. I'm afraid to put my dog out just to pee. I mean, he's only on this tall. So, you know, I, I don't feel safe in this town now. You took it away from me. I want to bring in CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, CNN contributor, Carrie Champion, political commentator, Mondaire Jones, former Democratic congressman, and political commentator, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, the former Trump White House communications director. Great to have all of you here. Wow, what a heartrending uh, statement from Jim Stewart is his name. And could he have phrased it any better? I mean, he's, this is his home. Yeah. He doesn't feel safe anymore. It's it had been his home for, I think he was saying, generations. Yeah. And now, I mean, you heard in the town hall, people don't know whether they can drink their water. They don't know whether they can breathe the air around them. What are they to do? Yeah, I think you have done, first off, CNN, kudos for this town hall. That's the first thing that I want to say. I feel as if there has been such an apathy to what's happening here in Ohio, and we simply are too caught up, whether it be on our phones, TikTok, our own personal lives. This is a natural disaster that has affected so many people. and Unnatural disaster. Unnatural (laughs) disaster. Man-made. That has not helped. Well, it's more natural because people do it. You know what I mean? Like, they're ignoring what is happening. They knew what was going on. They knew this would happen, and I I think they, the risk versus reward has been huge. And now we look and see these people who are simply devastated and we have to put a name to the faces. And now when we see someone like Jim, I think you said his name was, we think, okay, 
This really does matter. These are lives. I'm sorry, I don't know about you, but if I go on TikTok, I don't wanna look at rainbow water. I don't wanna see animals dying. As you have pointed out, unnatural disaster, ignored, perhaps prevented, but we have sat here for so long and ignored this. We're, what are we, a month in, almost? Close. Close to. Yeah. Um, Bill, I mean, you are steeped in these issues every day. <laughs> what did you hear tonight? It's the oldest story there is, yeah. uh, the big polluter and and, the little folks, you know, the, 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 the folks who just want their dogs to go pee safely. Um, I, I think the CEO did himself a service by finally showing up. Uh, what you see is that what starts as a man-made disaster only gets worse when there's no transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting that didn't come out today is to, to date, so far, the only testing we have online is from the Ohio EPA. There's four groundwater reports. Yeah. For whatever reason, the federal EPA is not coming forward with the testing. I'm talking to so many scientists who just look at the four reports that are out and say there's testing flaws here. Uh, there's elevations here that are only going to end up either in the groundwater or downstream. So the EPA is not, the federal EPA is not doing any water and air testing, or are they? They are, but they're not putting the results out. They don't, they're not being specific about what exactly they're testing for. So the experts say, we don't know if their equipment is calibrated mm-hmm to enough sensitivity to pick up these complex compounds that happen when these chemicals are burned together. And it creates stuff that we don't even truly know what it is. And so if you look at the state EPA's water reports, they're testing for DDT, which is a pesticide that wasn't on the train. And so what the experts say is that just tells me they're just doing your basic, this is your sort of generic checklist disaster. These are the chemicals most common. And let's check them off the list when it's way more complicated than that. Mondaire, what did you hear? I heard heart-wrenching pain from actual people, to your point, Carrie, uh, who, you know, have been going through something that they never imagined, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then the trauma of not knowing whether your water is actually safe to drink, mm-hmm. not knowing whether air is actually safe to breathe, mm-hmm. despite what the government whether at the state level or the federal level, is telling you because you see all these animals dying. And not only that, I heard other symptoms tonight. I heard them describe they're still vomiting. Some of the people in the town are still vomiting. And a lot of them are getting bloody noses. I hadn't heard that symptom and before. And hospitalized And they're for going to noses. the hospital because they're so, such strong bloody noses. I didn't know that that was still happening until tonight. I, will, I would just say, look, I, I think it would have been yet another scandal for the CEO not to have shown up to yeah. something that CNN was putting together. Again, yeah. kudos to the network. But I, I don't know that he acquitted himself well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, what we heard from the residents of East Palestine is that they still got a lot of unanswered questions or they didn't find his responses to be credible. It seems like comms 101, to, and, and you can talk more about this as a former White House comms director, you've you got to talk about what you're doing to, to, to get ahead of, of, you know, however long, it, I guess we'll find out tomorrow what the NTSB investigation will say, but like, they should be announcing multiple steps that they'll that they Correct. will undertake um, even before this report is published tomorrow. Hold your thought because you are the expert here in communications. So let me play for you and for our viewers what the CEO said tonight to some of the angry residents. I'm terribly sorry for what has happened to your community. I want you to know that Norfolk Southern is here and we're going to stay here and we're going to make this right. We're going to get the environmental cleanup right. We're going to support the citizens of this community. We're going to invest in the long-term health of this community. And we're going to help this community thrive. Melissa, what could he or should he have said differently? The only thing I give him credit for is showing up. Otherwise, this was 
corporate malpractice to put mm. him out in this in this state with a lack of any concrete things that he's offering. The only thing he referred to was the $7.5 billion for a victim's fund. But million. Every, million. Mil, million, I'm sorry. Billion would have gotten us a lot closer. <laughs> but, uh, the, but the fact that he, you're hearing everything from businesses that are not able to stay open or they're struggling to stay open. Bloody noses, horrifying things where people are having to live outside of their houses. And there wasn't a plan in place. I, I've, I've prepped CEOs before. I've worked with major corporations. And that would be the first thing. Let's come up with the solutions and then put them out there to explain it. So the lack of answers, I think, was very concerning. And I give tremendous credit to the people of East Palestine who, who participated tonight for pushing back on him because it really was vague and kind of down the road. But what's important about this and what CNN did tonight is these things can become very much a regional story. However, these do not get solved in a regional way. Um, I, at a much smaller level, have dealt with it. I'm sure you did in your congressional office where you have waste sites. that It can go on for years if yep. there's not a major figure advocating for you. So hopefully this keeps it front and center. Yeah. And hopefully so, we can—I'm sorry, Allison, but to, but to make this—this tr- truly is a national story. Because if you live near any waterway and a railroad crossing, there are, there are 25 million Americans that are within a half mile of an oil train line. And that's the evacuation zone for an explosion. So, yes, this awareness and this mm. attention on this and this CEO could lead the way yeah. into, a, into a new future. I the technology is there. Damage. The only thing stopping him from doing it. And the reason that was an easy slip, because they have $7.5 billion in cash Correct. right now that they're using to buy to back stock. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and that could have go tomorrow Jeez. to something else. And so, you know... But to your point, they needed to say, this is what we're doing. And I yeah. like when the one resident said, we need to know now. I don't want to hear about what's happening internally. Can I have a plan? Tell me what you're doing. She was very clear about the fact that her sister and her brother-in-law were right there. They could have died. She said, the way in which this could have affected my family, you guys aren't even taking that into consideration. We matter. We're humans. And that's the big issue here, the humanity of it all. Let's like, listen, we're forgetting yeah. that part. Let's listen to another one of the residents uh, speaking directly to the CEO. Did you call Salem or Columbiana or East Palestine to let us know to get away from our tracks? Because I didn't hear our sirens sounding. Just so- My sister was right next to the tracks with her fiancé. She could have been killed. This could have devastated our home. And it could have been prevented. And we could have been warned. And, and thank God that there were no casualties, no loss of life, no loss of buildings. I understand the anger, um, and I, I've experienced it as I've talked to the citizens of this community over the last two and a half weeks. Um, it's important to me that I hear directly from the citizens of East Palestine of you know, what I can do and what Norfolk Southern can do to help the recovery of this community. I'm prohibited from talking about the ongoing investigation. What I can do and what I am doing and the commitment that I'm making is we're going to get the environmental cleanup right. We're going to support the, the citizens and the, the family members here. And we're going to invest in the long-term growth of this community and help East Palestine thrive. Bill, one of the things that I think she's referring to is that there's video of the train having something having been wrong with the train yeah. miles before. 20 miles it, away. It was yeah, sparking. It was sparking. On a security Before camp. it derailed. So, um... I don't know if they didn't know about that, but they should have known about that. What do you think happens? This, this train was almost two miles long, 150 cars with two employees on it and a trainee. Mm. And so and, and with a braking system that starts from the front to the back. So it can take minutes before the back cars know to stop that the front has already stopped. 
And so, yeah, it's kind of hard. He's the new. He's a relatively new CEO. He's been there a couple of years, but he's been working at Norfolk Southern since the 90s at all different positions. He was there in 2005 when one of their trains derailed in South Carolina and killed nine people and put almost the entire village into the hospital uh, for a while. So there are plenty of lessons learned. <laughs> it's just a matter of implementing them without regulators forcing you to. Um, Pal, stick around. I want to get right now to our guest, Brian uh, DeLucia. He's the International Rail Division representative for the Transport Workers Union of America. Brian, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, so we were just talking about how there were only three workers on this, you know, incredibly long train. Uh, you represent the workers who, who do maintenance and who um, uh, review the train for security. So tell us what you heard tonight at this town hall. Thank you for having me on. Um, and I do want to start by, you know, our expresses sympathy on behalf of the Transport Workers Union to these residents of uh, East Palestine. And to quote uh, Mr. Stewart from earlier, this is not just a derailment, this is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, our members in Norfolk Southern employees are the car inspectors. Normally we would inspect the brake systems, um, safety apparatuses, make sure the hazardous um, cars are marked properly and everything else what the a lot of the class ones have done over the years back in 2017 was do a business model that's called precision schedule railroading the only thing that accomplished was furloughing and cutting many employees in the maintenance and in the operations department um it deferred maintenance on a lot of equipment it cut employees so bad that the remaining employees were forced into overtime on other shifts. That has accomplished nothing but fatigue. The only thing that PSR model accomplished was increased revenue to these railroads at a giant cost. Yeah, we have, uh, I want to put up this graphic, uh, Norfolk Southern by the numbers in 2022, $4.8 billion they made in profit from the railway um, operations, you know, were, went up. And they, however, in terms of what they had spent, uh, in terms of, well, we have it since 2018, on tracks and equipment, $8.9 um, billion. In other words, they're making a lot of profit, yet, as you say, they're cutting employees. They're not investing in the infrastructure, obviously, as much as they should. Here's the CEO talking about that uh, discrepancy. So how can you respond to those credibly who say you value the bottom line, your profits, more than you value the lives of the citizens whose communities your trains drive through? We're absolutely focused on safety. We invest over a billion dollars a year in safety through the form of maintenance, through equipment, through technology. Um, you know, clearly, this is a situation where our safety culture and our investments didn't prevent this accident. Um, every day, I've asked myself, what could we have done differently? I'm very much looking forward to the results of the NTSB investigation. We're going to take action. We're going to learn from this. And we're going to invest. We're going to make Norfolk Southern a safer railroad. 
there's always more we can do. And I'm looking forward to hearing those results. And we're going to sit, have an opportunity to sit down with our regulators and, and our elected officials, all the key stakeholders, and design ways to make Norfolk Southern and the industry safer. Mr. DeLucia, what's your response? So I'd have to challenge uh, Mr. Shaw here. Um, we still have many employees that are furloughed. Um, they need to increase inspections at every single yard that these trains go through. These trains are required under FRA to have um, class one brake tests done every 24 hours. Now, many of these yards, we do not have car inspectors in. So they allow, in this case, whatever yard that came from, it could have been that three-man crew that had you know, an engineer, a conductor, and a trainee perform that class one brake test that, yes, they say they're qualified, but in essence, they're worried about running that train. Do, are they actually doing what a car inspector takes three years to be trained on? I, I highly doubt it, but I'm not going to, you know, throw that shade of doubt. Um, if he really wants to put his money where his mouth is, he has to increase these inspections. It's and, vital here. And increasing inspections would cut down on derailments? I, I, I think it'd be a safeguard to help against future ones. We can't, they're not going to see every single thing, but in this case, the wayside detectors, something failed here. There was, I don't know every aspect of this accident in what happened there as the investigation is not done yet, but here, you know, that train ran for another 21 miles. Something's wrong here. Brian DeLucia, uh, International Rail Division Representative for Transport Workers Union of America. Thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you. All right, we've got a lot more ahead. Residents of East Palestine telling those in charge what they have been experiencing since this toxic train derailment. All that ahead. The oil. Ma'am. The oil is going to cause us the long-term effects. The chem- Everybody's talking about the chemicals. And while I do think that's important, it's the oil that's seeping into our ground that you chose not to dig up. Residents of East Palestine getting a chance tonight during CNN's town hall to tell their governor and Norfolk Southern CEO what they are living through. They say they're afraid to go home and they're still getting sick. Since we've come home, my son has had um, bloody noses every day. I took him to the pediatrician on Friday. I was told they had no guidance from the CDC, the health department. There was nothing they could do. I asked if they could do blood work, and they said no. They said no? They said no. So I, they, he said, I don't know what to tell you. We're in the dark as much as you are. Since the uh, night of the derailment, you know, I've had the symptoms, the sore throat, the irritated nose, the headaches. Um, I've been dizzy. Uh, I've also, uh, you know, just what sparked me to even go to the ER was just an exacerbation of those same symptoms. And, you know, the bloody nose, like when I blew my nose, just the amount of blood that came out was uh, alarming. And so I was, you know, sought treatment at the ER yesterday. The three of us, even the, uh, you know, the people from the media that were there, eyes were burning, uh, nose was running. I had a headache that lasted about eight or nine hours. And later that night, I had 
really bad, like projectile vomiting. Then how do you explain the virtual masses of people going to the medical facility that are not being helped? You have people with diarrhea, digestive problems, puking, sore throats, extreme migraines that last forever. How do you explain this? Bill Weir joins us now from the magic wall. Bill, these are acute symptoms and awful. So what do we know about the toxic chemicals that this train was carrying and if that's what causes all of this? Well, we know that about 20 of those cars were carrying hazardous materials. Uh, Five of them that derailed were carrying vinyl chloride. So just five cars out of a 150-car train, that that stuff is volatile enough uh, that it caused this the big mushroom cloud you saw there. We see it so much, it is used in the white PVC plastic pipe. It's a precursor to that ubiquitous piping used all over uh, the Western world. We know that in the 70s, entire factories, workers who were exposed to it for high levels for a long time, experienced uh, damage to liver, nerves. It's a carcinogen as well. There's less research about short-term exposure. The effects of drinking high levels are unknown. Now, a lot of the experts we talked to said a lot of it probably did ex- evaporate or explode in that controlled release uh, there. That they say, boy, if they hadn't done that and if it was still leaching everywhere else, it would be a big problem. The stuff is poisonous enough that even California is considering banning PVC materials in food packaging. We saw after the big fires, after uh, out the campfire in paradise, it, it heated up those communities so much it turned those pipes back into the volatile chemicals and tainted the water. But even though some are arguing it should be banned, that's a bigger ask because it is booming. 10, billion, or 10 million metric tons a year is what's expected in production by 2025. The other big one there is butyl acrylate. This is used in adhesives and plastics. It can cause coughing, shortness of breath, uh, that sort of roughness to the eyes and skin. A lot of the complaints we're hearing might have to do with this. Repeated exposure can lead to uh, permanent lung damage as well. But then there's other things that we really don't know about, that different complex chemicals, as they blew up in that controlled release, could have formed different things that then spread out and rained down on the community. And we have no idea if the EPA, either the Ohio or federal EPA, really knows what's in that there, because there's such a dearth of information on the testing. And the one expert I did talk to, we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, as they described, this is the stuff that ends up on your windshield, in the water, the fish kill there as well. They looked at the reports from the Ohio EPA, and this is the head of the executive director of the Three Rivers Waterkeeper. She's also a trained PhD ecologist. She said some of the quality control was subpar in the samples. It says in the reports uh, that, that some of the, those samples were allowing a, too much of an air pocket at the top of the water sample, six millimeters, and that's enough to throw off the sample uh, when you're measuring for these volatile organic compounds. So, so many questions about what exactly is out there and what exactly is causing those symptoms, Alice. Bill, thank you for all of that. Come back and join us on the panel. I want to bring in the panel now. I mean, the way Bill lays it out, of course, people are getting sick. When you hear those hazardous uh, um, ingredients, mm-hmm. chemicals, how could they not be getting sick when they, that's turned loose in their community? I think if, if I live there, and, and I can't even put myself in that situation, but I'm sitting there and I'm listening to Bill, I'm listening to everyone explain what we are experiencing, and at the end of the day, I just want answers. I don't need the big words. I don't need you telling me what caused it. I need you to tell me how to prevent it and how I can get to the hospital and stop my nose from bleeding and stop my child from vomiting and find out what's going on with my mother and my sister and everybody else and why are all these animals dead and why are we pretending 
something like this isn't as huge of a deal as it is. And again, I go back to this. I honestly don't believe that we're taking this into we, as in society as a whole, are paying attention to the severity of all of this. I am devastated for those people. And you know what it feels like? It feels like I can see you, but I can't hear you. Mm -hmm. And so tonight when we saw all of that anger and we saw so many people um, expressing their frustration to the CEO, while yes, he could have done more, I think a lot of it is just see us and hear us. That's the first part of solving the problem. That's what this did tonight. Yeah. It healed a lot of people. See me and hear me. I have a name. I live here. Here's my address. Here's what I look like. This is my family's life. I have nowhere else to go. Yeah, I totally agree. We've been covering it for two weeks, but somehow tonight, even I felt differently about this Correct. disaster because they said it in such plain and powerful terms. And to hear them explain it was different. There are people watching who are saying, boy, that sounds terrible. They should move somewhere else. I wouldn't want to live there. But we know that it's not so easy to just pick up and move somewhere else, right? People have lived here for generations, as we heard from from Jim Stewart, I believe his name was. You know, his family came from Germany. Uh, he told that story. Uh, you know, when, when you don't have the financial resources to, to relocate, you are stuck in a place and, and, you, and you've got roots there and you send your kids to school and all home. these other things. I mean, sure. and so the situation really is like people are, are stuck in, a, in, a, in an environment where they have good reason to believe that the drinking water is not really drinkable and that the air is, is not something that they should be breathing in, uh, that they won't get all of the medical care that they need when they visit the local hospital. Uh, and... And that nothing is materially going to change for the foreseeable future. And so, Alyssa, yeah, go ahead. What, what, should, what could he have said to address all of that? I'm not sure until he has actual solutions he can. And there's so many unknowns. At one point, they were talking about the local EPA official, that they were testing water, but it was only the public flowing water. So if you had a private well, you have no idea if that water is safe. There's a lot we still don't know. But to Mondaire's point, I was struck by the human side of this because my first thought was, what would I do in this situation? And what I would do is pack up my family and go somewhere else. The median income in East Palestine is $27,000 a year. So there, there's obviously, you know, resources and limitations on people's ability. But what I was also struck by is their pride. This is their home. They mm -hmm. love it. Nobody wants to leave. They want to be there. They just want to be safe. They want to have access to the basic things that they expect. And how quickly their lives went from, you know, just normal, everyday living in their community to just completely uprooted is devastating. Yeah. So on that point, what does happen when you don't feel safe in your own home? We're going to talk to an Ohio mental health official after this. Would what you, you stay? Would, he's would asking you come if you, would stay, question, if you would stay in East Palestine, would you come and spend yes. the night there? You until would. This, until yes. the cleanup is done, you'll stay with us? Within the one mile? Yes. I've, yes, I've been there, I've been there three times. For I, a few I, hours. Well, Have you, will you there. stay overnight for a period of time? Yeah. Okay, hopefully we hold you to that. Tonight, East Palestine residents explain the physical symptoms that they're still having since the train derailment. But what about the emotional toll this disaster is taking on that community? Joining me now is Lori Chris, the director of the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Uh, Ms. Chris, thanks so much for being here. So tell us what mental health issues you're seeing in East Palestine since this happened. Well, thanks for having us and thanks for bringing this part of the topic into the conversation 
really what we're seeing is a trauma response. After a, a, a disaster like this, the immediate after, after effects, we would definitely expect to see fear and anxiety, anger, a lot of other symptoms too. People you know, having trouble sleeping or concentrating, um, maybe having a loss of appetite, a lot of other behavioral kind of emotional experiences that come in the direct aftermath of a disaster like this. I was so um, struck to hear people talk about how there are 50 trains that are still rolling through East Palestine every day and how unnerving that is to the people there. And so is that PTSD? I mean, when they're hearing the trains and they're having these emotional responses, what can they do about that and what does that mean? Sure. It's called re-traumatization. So someone who's survived a trauma is potentially going to have something happen that makes them feel exactly like they did in the moment of that original trauma. I grew up in a small town down the river from East Palestine, and it was a steel town with lots of train tracks. And when I was in East Palestine yesterday, I was talking to people about that the experience, and they were saying how they hear every whistle now. And, you know, growing up in a town like that, you don't hear the trains really on a day-to-day basis. It just becomes part of the, the rhythm and the, the noise around you. And so they are. They're, they're hearing it. They're having a freeze response. They, you know, have a physical response to that. And so there are things they can do. There are things that the local community has put in place with a lot of attention and support from us since the night of the derailment that can help people as they move through this trauma experience. One of the things that we heard tonight was all the physical symptoms that people are still having. They are Mm -hmm. acute. So uh, people are still having bloody noses. Their children are having bloody noses so badly that they need to go to the emergency room. People are still having nausea, headaches, they're vomiting. And yet, you know, all the officials are telling them, well, all the tests for the air and water are coming back clean. I can imagine that that is crazy making for people because they know what they're feeling and that compounds the mental health issue. Well, I think it does in terms of adding stress to the unknown, right? Part of a trauma experience is not knowing the next predictable thing. And so there's a lot of unknowns right now. People know what they're feeling, they know what they're experiencing and Believing that and honoring that is a really important part of their experience right now, too. And that's why you heard the governor talk about the clinic that was set up and the opportunity for people to get some screenings, get connected to those specialists that might be able to help them really dive into those symptoms that they're experiencing and and not just get to the root cause, but also understand how to recover from those and move forward. Part of that clinic, too, is we have some crisis response teams on site. So if people want to talk to someone to feel the opportunity to really tell their full story, be heard, be believed, and get connected to those supports that might help them for the long haul, that's there as well. And so we know this. We know that this stress is going to be here in a really intense way for the first few weeks and months after this derailment. For many people, it will subside over time as things become more normal. For other people, it might remain intense for a longer period of time, and that would be a good opportunity for them to seek some support. Lori, Chris, really appreciate that, and they need to be prepared that it's going to be weeks or months uh, of experiencing this. Thank you very much for all the information. Thank you. So it turns out there are a lot more derailments every month in the U.S. than we knew. Next, we're going to look at the state of railroad safety in the U.S.
We've dug up 4,600 cubic yards of soil and collected 1.7 million gallons of water. We will continue with environmental remediation. And in early March, we will start by tearing up the tracks and digging up the soil underneath the tracks. For six weeks, oil's gonna be soaking into our soil. Trains are running again through East Palestine, Ohio, and the mayor there explained how unsettling that sound is now. It's a little unnerving hearing the trains go through after just what happened. But, you know, I I, I attribute it to uh, the safe as being in a car wreck and you're, you're, you know, you're cautious after a car wreck. Um, But, yes, it's a little unnerving, you know, hearing the trains come through. And maybe I think we need to look at some safety regulations and, you know, see if there's anything that we can change to maybe slow them down a little bit. And now we know train disasters are not as rare as you'd imagine. Bill Weir is back at the Magic Wall for us. We are also back with Kerry Champion, Mondaire Jones, and Alyssa Farrah Griffin. So, Bill, uh, obviously train disasters, not exclusive to Ohio. And we've learned um, just they're, I mean, I don't want to say that they're common, but there's a lot more per year than I ever knew about. And trains are rattling through all of our neighborhoods every day. About 1,000 derailments a year, Allison, if you can believe that. Uh, 15% of those, 150, are due to bad tracks. They're either out of alignment or they can't take the weight of the cars going over. On a warming planet, when that infrastructure swells in hot places, that could get worse. And, of course, when this happens, when you have a car in the wrong place at the wrong time carrying the wrong stuff, the results can be truly horrific. This is just in the last, you know, 15 years or so. Uh, Central Valley, Illinois, one dead when a train carrying ethanol caught fire after derailing there. Paulsboro, New Jersey, this was very similar to the one here in Ohio. Uh, more toxic vinyl chlorine got into, chloride got into the waterways as well and was a legacy problem for years afterwards. In 2013, a train with uh, Bakken crew derailed, caught fire in Alabama. That same year, 47 people were killed when a train car exploded up in Canada and in, in Lynchburg, Virginia, 30,000 gallons of crude oil uh, dumped in the river. This is not exhaustive by any stretch. These are some of the worst cases. Of course, the Norfolk Southern crash back in 2005 in South Carolina took nine lives there as well. And this is what you guys were talking about. You worry about this. This is just oil train routes on the United States. And if you count the people who live within a half mile of an oil train, that's 25 million people. Uh, who hear that sound maybe differently after watching what's going on. And what really struck me, guys, is why this particular disaster resonated, given the number, given everything we've talked about right now. And it got me thinking about how when I was a little boy, my, my toddler's age, rivers in Ohio regularly burst into flames. The Cuyahoga River near Cleveland uh, was so polluted, it set on fire nine times from the Civil War up until the 60s. In 1969, people finally took notice when Time magazine put this story in the, in the magazine. They used a picture actually from 1952 because it was so common, nobody got a shot of the fire in 69. But this, when the mayor of that city went to Congress and said, you got to help us pay for this, it caught the country at a moment when 
They saw the pollution in the air and in the water and in covering the ground around them. We saw our first pictures from Apollo 8 of this little spaceship Earth. And this gave rise to the modern EPA, the Clean Air and Water Act, which there was a reason you can swim in the Ohio River and they drink out of it after treatment uh, as well. So a lot of progress made, but maybe East Palestine could be a Cuyahoga fire moment when it comes to train safety, when it comes to the way we think about our railways and our waterways. Well, that would certainly be a silver lining. Let me bring back in the panel right now. Um, Mondaire, let me just show everybody what Bill was talking about in terms of train derailments, because the numbers, I think, are staggering. So uh, there were uh, 1,100 in 2022. That's down from previous years. In 2017, there were 1,400 train derailments that year. Norfolk Southern has been responsible for upwards of 100 every single year. And so should lawmakers be doing something in Washington about this? I think they should. I think, God, where do you, where do you begin? I mean, there, there's already regulatory authority to do some of the stuff that I think is required. And I don't want to get too far ahead of things because we will get the NTSB report tomorrow. And I think that will be instructive. Uh, but generally speaking, we've seen a period a, of deregulation when it comes to safety and mm-hmm. across industries. And the, 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 this industry is, is not excluded from that. But specifically with trains. I mean, as you know, there was that 2018, 2000, uh, when did President Obama, 15, in 2015, President Obama um, passed this regulatory rule that would have put these special brakes into each one of the cars. There was a proposal for an industry lobbied against it and successfully blocked it. Oh, I thought that it was supposed to actually go into effect in 2023. So it was sort of a longer period thing. And then President Trump came in and repealed it. We may be talking about two different things. Okay. Um, Yeah. I I mean, you know, there's a lot of flack that obviously the Secretary of Transportation has gotten over this. Um, You know, I think a lot of it is political, unfortunately. It's the the, the same people, Marco Rubio, for example, who have have lambasted Pete Buttigieg for for not, um, you know, putting some of these sort of safety inspection related rules in place Mm -hmm. was just lobbying for waivers in a 2021 letter signed by by not just Marco Rubio, but a number of members of of the Congress. And so, you know, when you deregulate when it comes to safety in particular, there are typically consequences as a result of that. And now, Alyssa, do you think Republicans will have more of an appetite for any kind of regulation, train regulation? Unfortunately, I think this is one where people are going to go into their partisan corners. I thought it was very interesting in an earlier segment you did. It showed the breakdown of lobbying um, that Norfolk Southern does. They give a little more heavily to Republicans and Democrats, but you're still talking to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars that they're engaging in Capitol Hill precisely to keep regulations out of place that could improve safety. I think it needs to be a wake-up call for Republicans. Because, listen, I criticized the administration that I didn't feel like the Biden administration was moving quickly enough to address what's happening. But we do know one of the factors was a result of regulation from the prior administration. Like, that's just a fact of it. I also think Feeling it's a good... Back, rolling back, rolling back, back that regulation. Correct. Yeah. And I do think it's a good move that Secretary Buttigieg is planning to visit. And I think that's a step in the right direction to keep the national focus on it. Yeah. I, I just, just one last thing on, on, on this. You know, the EPA has the primary responsibility to clean this up, the federal EPA. And so, you know, a lot of people are criticizing the Secretary of Transportation for not getting out there sooner. It, it, 
there's actually not much his visit would accomplish yeah. other than making people feel good. And, and maybe the argument is that that in and of itself is is the appropriate thing. But I just I want to be clear that it's more important that Michael Regan be there as he has been from the beginning. He says as the EPA has been there since hours after the derailment, you know, making sure that they're assessing and, and doing the cleanup. And Carrie, let me play for you what Michael Regan said tonight. I don't have any questions for the CEO of Norfolk Southern. I have some orders for the company. And uh, the orders are that uh, the company will comply uh, with our order, which compels them uh, to take full responsibility, full accountability for the trauma they've inflicted on this community and the damage that they've caused. I mean, so far they're offering residents roughly $7 million. Yeah. I, the thing is, I don't know if there's a monetary amount, honestly. Do, do you believe that there really is truly a number that says, it's okay, um, we're sorry for what we did? Um, we probably could have prevented this if there wasn't deregulation. We probably could have done the right thing, but we chose not to because we had to have this disaster, man-made, in order for us to re- look at really what's happening and pay attention. I think it was really important what Bill just said. Is this a time for us to really make this a teachable moment and change what we do, right, with the train systems? Is this a moment for us to say, let's really work on doing something that's good for this community, for the culture? And I think it is, but if we keep pointing at what the Republicans and what the Democrats are doing, will we ever get there? Will we get to that point? I I don't know about you all, but right now this is not to be politicized, yet it will be. I feel as if we are missing the bigger picture, we as a society as a whole. And that's where I live with this. There's no dollar amount, not in my mind. Yeah, for the man who's been there for generations, whose family's been there generations and he wants to stay in his home, what's the dollar amount to make him feel good again? Allison, you just, we have the young lady on talking about the mental toll that this is going to take on people. Is there a dollar amount for your sanity, for your peace? Is there any of that? And I don't know if we're asking the right questions. And who are we looking at? I would would tell you, as as a former litigator, uh, people put dollar amounts on this kind of stuff all the time. And I think it it means a lot that Norfolk Southern has a significant insurance policy because I think these people are going to get a lot of money from this. Oh, there's already class action suits obviously cropping up. But they take so long. That's the hard part is you're going to be waiting so long to get that. But they deserve it. All right. uh, Everybody stick around if you would. The theme tonight, a lack of trust in the people in charge. We'll talk about that next. I I understand people's skepticism. I understand uh, the confusion. Uh, I understand that, you know, they don't believe everything that they're told. We heard promises of help tonight in CNN's town hall, but many East Palestine residents say they do not know who to trust. Back with me, we have Bill Weir, Carrie Champion, Mondaire Jones, and Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Let's hear the um, governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, talk about the skepticism of his constituents. I understand people's skepticism. I understand uh, the confusion. Uh, I understand that, you know, they don't believe everything that they're told. But as a leader, uh, you know, look, I've done this for a long time. I haven't been your governor for a long time, but I've been in, in, in government for a long time. And the one thing I am is a straight shooter. I tell people, you know, what the facts are if we know what the facts are. And we try to tell them the best information. Sometimes we don't know all the information. Sometimes we, we get facts that maybe are wrong, but there's no way in the world I'm going to convey to you or to any other citizen a fact that I 
I think is wrong, and I'm telling you it's right. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you what I know when I know it, and I'm going to continue to do that. And I think, you know, you, you judge someone by their, by their, by their whole mm-hmm. record. Alyssa, your final thoughts on it. Listen, the governor's expectation setting, he doesn't have a lot of answers. He's, he's a good man. He's a qualified leader, but it leaves something to be desired. My dear. I do. I think it's an incredibly difficult situation uh, for the governor to be in and for anyone in government who's been tasked with responding to this. But, you know, there's got to be more transparency and there's got to be. An, what could they say? I think you've got to talk about the things that you're going to do to make it less likely this, this will happen in, in the future, even if those things we don't know yet were tied precisely to, to what caused this derailment. Yeah. Yeah, and Gary. to his point, like, if I'm there and I'm a citizen of that community, I am, and I live there, and I'm thinking, I have mixed emotions. I don't trust you. I don't know what to believe. But what I do hope, what we talked about and alluded to in the break, is that hopefully this is that teachable moment. This is that changing moment so that there can be something done. Absolutely. Bill? Mr. Rogers said in a tragedy, look for the helpers. But what happens when it is a political sort of strategy to say, don't trust the helpers. I think this is going to be hard for us. This is a moment for the country to, to figure out the, the toxic politics that are also part of this toxic spill and how we trust each other again. Well, CNN isn't going anywhere. We are staying on this story until we get answers. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.